All right, well, last week we began the year together by introducing the great big transformational idea that we're hoping the Lord will take and capture us with, and then, having captured us, mold us and shape us and inspire us and move us and convict us and change us and make us more like Jesus by the end of this year than we are right now. And the great big transformational idea, in the event that you missed it, is that life is... Mission, And I want to explain that to you again because I know that not everybody got it and repetition is the mother of learning. And so when I say that life is mission, what I mean by life, first of all, is the, um, is the eternal life that is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So I'm talking, first of all, about the salvation experience. I'm talking about that moment in time when the Holy Spirit came from outside of you and entered inside of you and made you alive to a bunch of different realities that you'd really never really considered previously. Like, for example, the rather traumatic reality that there are things that every one of us, every one of us have done and said. There are things that we're all doing and saying. There are things that, despite our best efforts, we will yet do and say that are not at all offensive to our friends. They are not at all offensive in our culture. They are not at all offensive in our day and age. They're not at all offensive in our world. They may not even be offensive to our mom. But they actually are offensive to a perfectly holy and righteous God whose opinion alone, frankly, in the end matters. I mean, the reality is, look, we're all going to go into eternity and we're going to stand before the judge of our culture. No, no, by that standard, we'd be fine. All right, our mom is going to be on the throne and she's going to be sitting there going, you know, I know that you were an axe murderer, but you're, you're really a good kid at heart. No. No. We're going to stand before a perfectly righteous and a perfectly holy God who will then judge us by the standard of his own perfect righteousness and holiness. Ah, that means that there are things that we've done and said or doing and saying and will, despite our best efforts, in our brokenness, in our fallenness, yet do and say that, well, legitimately is offensive to him. And here's the other reality. We can't undo or unsay them. We just can't. We can't outweigh them with good things like, you know, and then make them like go away. That doesn't work. We said last week that our lives are not like some ever-expanding book that every day, you know, we add a few pages to and that someday we can just pull off of a shelf and then get out a bunch of white out and start marking things out. You know, just use the Ten Commandments as your litmus test. Let's start with this one because this is one that no one in our culture thinks about. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. OMG. Do you ever think about that? How much whiteout do you need for that one? All right, thou shalt not lie. Okay, now like a 18-wheelers backing up to the house with whiteout. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Do you know what that means? I mean, like translation, do you know what that is? That's God coming along and grabbing up this beautiful thing called sex that he's given to us as a gift and putting parameters upon it so that we enjoy it and don't injure ourselves with it. The reality is that this is a room full of regret. And most of that regret involves that area. That's true of every room. That's true of almost every one. He's coming to us with his commandment and he's saying, let let me help you out here. Let me keep you safe here. Let me give you something that you might then experience in all of its sweetness. Don't commit adultery means sex is for married people and for the person that you're married to, that's it. Wow. A lot of white out. 
The reality is, as you survey your life, if you could flip through that book and, and pull out the whiteout, you'd be dialed a whiteout by age three because, you know, thou shalt honor thy father and mother. Okay, that's it. We're done. All of us done. See, the truth is nobody needed to teach us how to be selfish. Nobody needed to teach us how to lie. Nobody needed to teach us how to hit our brother or sister. Nobody needed to teach us how to be disrespectful to our parents. We didn't need to go to a seminar. You know, you didn't sit around the table with your parents and they said, we're going to role play because this doesn't come naturally to you. The Spirit comes and He makes us alive to these realities that, you know, we otherwise would never think about. And then he rushes to our aid in the midst of our distress with Jesus Christ, the only one who has ever lived a life that is truly pleasing to the Lord our God, the only one who's ever lived a life that meets God's perfectly righteous, perfectly holy standard, and the one who came into this world to live that life for you and who then freely offers you his perfect life in exchange for your very imperfect life and his sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection as the full and complete payment, get this, for everything you've done and said in the past are doing and will even yet do. It's a remarkable offer. And then the Spirit gives you the faith by which you embrace that Savior. So when I say that life is mission by life, I mean, first of all, that, but then secondly, I mean every single moment of every single day that every single one of us is even in this moment living. I mean that too. And as we talked about last week, and it's fundamental, it's foundational to our understanding of life as mission, those two kinds of life that I just described are not disconnected. They are intimately connected. As we said last week, look, if you belong to Jesus, you belong to Jesus. If you've come to faith in Christ, whether you realize it or not, here's what you got, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his eternal life a share in his infinite and eternal inheritance, and on and on and on that goes. Here's what he got. He got your sin, he got your hell, he got your punishment, and he got you. Every single moment of every single day of your life, he got your life. He owns you. He purchased you eternally with his blood. That's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. He says, For you were bought with a price. Where? At the cross. By whom? By Father God. At what cost? Because it speaks to your value. He paid the price of the life of His Son, who is infinitely valuable, for you, which ought to kind of puff your chest up a little bit. So then what's the response? He says, He'll go out and glorify whatever you want with your body. It's not what He says. He says, So glorify God in your body. And again, what do you do with your body? You live. Life is mission. And by life, I mean both the eternal life that is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and every single moment of every single one of our everyday lives, all of which he's purchased with his blood. And then by mission, I mean his mission. And we talked about that last week as well. What's his mission? What's our mission? We are to go out and to the very ends of the earth, what are we to do? We are to do what Jesus began to do in his life and times and days here on planet earth. And we are to go out and to the very ends of the earth, what else? We're to teach what Jesus began to teach. So then what did Jesus begin to do? Well, Jesus, among other things, did things like feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty and championing the cause of the oppressed and giving a voice to the voiceless and standing for justice, real justice. 
and against injustice and so forth. In other words, he came to people whose lives were devastated by sin, and he didn't just tell them how to be forgiven, though he clearly did do that. And he died that they might and that we might. But he also addressed their sin-devastated lives, and so ought we. We're to extend the hand of the mercy of Jesus at cost to ourselves, sacrificially even as he did, to the world. But we're also to teach what he taught. This gospel of free grace and salvation by it. This message of the kingdom of God, which contains a vision that is so much greater than just the forgiveness of sins and just the creation of a redeemed people. The vision is of a redeemed everything. There is a new people that he is creating by his gospel out of every language and nation of this earth, as we'll see today, and he's creating us for a new city, a new heaven, a new earth, in which there will finally be no more hunger and no more thirst and no more war and no more oppression and no more injustice and no more suffering and no more sickness, no more separation, no more sin. No more death, no more of the things that we look at in this life and think to ourselves, you know, as good as this life can get, my goodness, there's got to be something better than this. And here's the really exciting part. The really exciting part is not simply that that's our future, though it is, and that's exciting. That's inspiring. That should allow us to endure the trials of this life, knowing that... They will end in what's coming. Well, so much better than this. But the other part of the exciting thing, for me at least, is that that is what you and I are called and then given the privilege of investing our lives and moving history and humanity toward in our day as we do what? Well, as we do what Jesus began to do and as we teach what Jesus began to taught, or to put it differently, as we live our lives as mission. And so that's what we talked about last week as we introduced this great big transformational idea And as we began a study of the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, who also wrote the book of... Oh, wow, that was lame. Luke! He wrote the book of Luke. And he wrote this book of Acts. And in this book, he gives us a picture of the early church. He gives us a picture of this people who are learning to live their lives as mission. And today, as we pick up our study, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that, yes, life is mission, but that it is a mission that is led by the Holy Spirit and that is lived out in His power, which means that my job with my life, your job with your life, is not to figure it out for God. It's to figure out what God wants you to do. It's not to come up with a plan and then say, hey, you know, Lord, I think that this would be helpful to your kingdom, so I want you to come along and with your spirit make this work. (laughs) No, it's to draw near to Christ through the Spirit, in personal worship, through His Word, through prayer, and to come to know His voice and to begin to discern His plan. That's the right plan. And that's the plan that the Spirit inspires. As Matt said at the beginning, you know, Jesus invites us to follow Him. He doesn't invite us to, you know... Have us or have him follow us. Hey, Lord, come. No, it's the other way around. So life is mission, but it's a mission that is led by the Holy Spirit and lived out 
in His power. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, then please turn to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to have the words up on the screen so you can follow along. But we desperately want you to have a very good study Bible. So if you don't have one, or if you just want the same one that everyone else is using, so you're literally on the same page and you're in the same translation and not distracted maybe when the words are different then we make them available for you at the Information Center after the services. And uh, and we'd invite you to go get one. And we make the price right, hint, hint, okay? We'd love for you to have it. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, where we pick up this story from last week where we saw Jesus gathering his disciples together on the Mount of Olives, from which he will ascend to heaven, and which overlooks the city of Jerusalem, overlooks the Temple Mount. You can see where the city of David is. So he's standing up there with his guys, and what did he do last week? He commissioned them to take his mercy, to take his message to the ends of the earth, and then in their very presence, he ascends into heaven to resume heaven's throne, but not until he also said to these guys in so many words, okay, guys, here is your next move. Your next move is not to charge out and try to go do this. Your next move is not to hold a big strategy meeting and figure out a good plan. Your next move is to go back into the city that you can see right over here, to go back to the upper room where we've all been hanging out, and to wait, to pray, and to wait for the Holy Spirit, because life is mission, but it's a mission that is led by the Spirit and empowered by Him. We pick up our study today, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, where Luke says this. He says, when the day of Pentecost, which by the way is a word that means simply 50th, The day of Pentecost fell on the 50th day from the Passover, and it also marked the beginning of another festival called the Feast of Weeks. And so the Jews would assemble in Jerusalem three times a year from all over the then-known world, including the day of Pentecost. That's significant. All of these Jewish people who lived in all of these different nations of the world would come together, they would gather in the city of Jerusalem for this particular feast and the other two as well, and they would come speaking their unique languages, and they would come bringing their unique cultures from all of these different locations. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the 120 disciples of Jesus who had just been with him only a few days earlier on the Mount of Ascension, who had been commissioned by him, who had watched him go up and who had been told to pray and wait for the Spirit, were gathered in the upper room all together in one place, praying for and waiting for the Spirit even as he had told them to do. And suddenly, now notice how the Spirit comes because it's instructive. Suddenly there came from Heaven. Our help comes from heaven, guys. It doesn't come from inside ourselves. It doesn't come from the world. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound. Now, what do you hear sounds with? It's not a trick question. You hear them with your ears. Okay, hang on to that. So suddenly there came from heaven a sound that, you know, they heard with their ears, and it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And those of us who live in South Florida and have been through a few hurricanes know that sound, don't we? It's undeniable. It's unmistakable. You don't miss it when it comes. Your ears hear it. 
Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled not just part of the house, but the entire house where they were sitting. And not only did they hear the coming of the Spirit with their ears, but they saw the coming of the Spirit with their eyes as well. Because Luke then says, and divided tongues as of fire, what? appeared to them, and they saw them with their eyes. And when you're studying a passage of Scripture like this, like I hope you did all week long in your personal worship leading up to today, you study it slowly. There's a reason why we have you spend four days in the same passage of Scripture. That's hard to do, isn't it? Not if you're eating it one bite at a time. Not if you're treating it like fine dining and not McDonald's. Not if you're coming to it intentionally and prayerfully asking questions of it. And when you come to something like this, you need to stop and go, Lord, what are you trying to tell me here? By sending the Spirit in this particular way, He didn't have to do it this way. But He did do it this way. And I think that among other things, He's saying, hey, you know what, guys? The Spirit is objectively real. And the Spirit is objectively here. He's real. And he's here. And I think as well, he's trying to teach us something about us. That the hope and that the help that we need in this life to live life as mission is not something that already resides within us. It's something that comes from outside of us and then enters into us. It comes from heaven. It's exterior to our person. It's not something we already have that just needs to be unleashed. And I think that's a radical thought, particularly in today's culture, the very culture that you and I are called to go out into and live our lives as mission in. I heard a very interesting statistic this week. I was a little surprised by it, but then as I thought about it, it kind of makes sense. I heard this week that there are 30% less people in America today seeking psychotherapy than there were 15 years ago. And you say, well... I don't know, maybe that's good news. You know, we're doing a little better. Are we doing better? Is that objectively real? Or are we instead experiencing things that, frankly, 15 or 20 years ago, we would have no category for? We we wouldn't be able to even conceive of. We could not in our wildest dreams imagine. I think the reason that there are 30% less people seeking psychotherapy today than there were 15 years ago is because we've spent the last two or three decades, the last 20 or 30 years, telling ourselves and telling each other and raising a whole generation of people to believe that everything you need already lies within you. It just needs to be unleashed. The answer is in you and your problem, well, that's outside of you. Well, that's very different from what the Bible says. The Bible comes to me and the Bible comes to you and says, okay, listen, you might have some problems out here. Let me tell you where your main problem lies, who your main problem is. Tom, your main problem is you. You are the main problem. Not somebody else. You. Now, think about the difference in those two messages. And think about the consequences that lie in the difference. You know, if marriage is mission, and it is, it's part of life, is it not? We have a mission to our husband or wife, a mission to our kids or parents, a mission to a world that needs to see marriage work. And God himself and grace has given us the wisdom by which it will work if we but submit humbly to it and by the power of the Spirit live it out. But here's the deal. If you're convinced that your spouse is the problem and your spouse is convinced that you're the problem, you're done. Because you can't change him or her, and she or he can't change you. 
The best you can hope for in that scenario is a marriage that the two of you can tolerate. That's it. But that's not what the Bible says. Listen to what James says. James is always so subtle. James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? All right, now let's be honest. Here's what we want to say. It's that person I'm married to. It's my parents. It's my children. It's my employer. It's my employee. It's that whole group of people who treat me unfairly. And you know what? Maybe they do treat you unfairly. But but this is what he says. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now he's going to answer his own question. He says, is it not this? Here it is. That your passions are at war. Where? Outside of you somewhere? No, no, no. Inside of you. There's a battle going on in here, he's saying. You desire and you do not have. Now listen to the strength of this language. So you murder. That's where you want to check out. That's where you want to go, hey, um, no, he must not be talking to me because I've never murdered anybody. Okay, well, maybe not with your hand. How about with your mouth? How about with your eyes, with a look? How about with an attitude? How about in your heart? There are various shades of that crime. It gets a little more unmasking when you look at it that way, I think. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Okay, I'm going to help you out. This is what it is. It is that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have. You don't get what you want, and so you murder. You covet, and you cannot obtain what you covet, and so you fight and quarrel. The guys, the world comes to us and says, hey, your main problem lies outside of you. It's exterior. And the Bible says, no, 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 your main problem is you. It's inside of you. And what you need is for the Holy Spirit to come from heaven, from outside of you, and to enter into you, and to humble you, and to bring you to the foot of the cross in repentance and humility and faith in Christ where you are made new and washed clean, and then to take His Word as you open it day by day and prayerfully patiently consider it and ask questions of it and interact with it and mold you and shape you and change you and move you and inspire you and make you more like the one who lived his life as mission for you. So Luke says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, The followers of Jesus were all together in one place, praying for and waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then suddenly there came from heaven an objectively verifiable sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. No one could miss it. And objectively verifiable divided tongues as of fire then also appeared to them. And, And what did those tongues of fire do? They rested on each One of them, that is an amazing and a remarkable statement for at least two reasons. Number one being that the apostles were there. The 12 were part of the 120. Judas was dead, Judas was gone, but Judas, if you've done your personal worship for this week, you already know, has been replaced. God has ordained these 12 men. Jesus Christ has trained these 12 men. They are unique in so many ways, but the Spirit doesn't just alight on them. He lights on every Christian in the room. So the objectively verifiable spirit who is objectively here is objectively for who? For every believer in Jesus, guys. 
He's objectively for you, and that's remarkable, but it's even more remarkable when you consider what fire in the Bible represents. I mean, think about it. When God appears to make his covenant with Abraham, he comes as a smoking furnace and a burning torch. He comes as fire. When the Lord appears to Moses out in the Midianite desert, he comes in the burning bush. He comes as fire. When God descends upon Mount Sinai to give his people the law, he descends as fire. When he leads the people of Israel around at night in the wilderness, as he leads them as a pillar of fire. So now then, what does that mean? It means that if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you have Almighty God living in you. And that's another stopping point, you know, as you work through these things, as you study the Scriptures, you've got to stop and just imagine for a moment and marvel at the transformational possibilities of that. The God for whom nothing is impossible lives in you. And so the Spirit comes upon these guys, and then Luke says in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And you're like, okay, well, what does that look like? All right, well, let's just keep reading for a second. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they apparently rushed out into the streets of the city because they're like really on fire, literally and metaphorically, apparently. And they began to speak in other tongues, meaning here, and we'll see this as it plays out in other languages, okay? As the Spirit gave them utterance. And you say, so then, does it look like a people who speak in tongues? No. But it does look like a people who speak. The Spirit moves us to speak. Spirit-filled people speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. They cannot help but to do so. They're, They're so full of the Spirit. They're so full of Christ that they can't contain it. Remember, years ago, I was talking to my dad's uncle, Uncle Ben. And so he's my great uncle, and he's a wonderful guy. He's in his 90s today. Still alive and still going fairly strong. Uh, when he was about 45, he quit his job and he became the pastor of a church that he had founded out of a community group or small group in his home. And anyway, very spirit-filled guy. And so we were talking about witnessing and all that stuff. And he said, you know, Tom, I look at it like this. He says, if I'm walking down the street with you and I run into somebody, it would almost be rude if I don't introduce them to you, wouldn't it? He said, you know, Christ is with me everywhere I Go by the Spirit. I just talk about Him. I introduce Him to folks. I tell them about Jesus. Almost sounds natural. And I think it is. Luke says, and they were all filled with the Spirit. And and here's the manifestation of that. They began to speak in other tongues, meaning, again, here in other languages, actual languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the languages that they spoke in, by the way, were all of the different languages of the nations of the earth. Now listen, because he says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of weeks, which started on this particular day. And notice what happens. It says, and at the sound, meaning at the sound of these 120 or so people leaving the upper room, rushing out into the street and proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the languages of all of these people who have gathered in this city from all of these nations, these guys, this multitude of people in the city came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And he gives a list. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, meaning converts to Jews who were Gentiles, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them, they said, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, meaning the mighty works of God through Jesus Christ. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And that's a good question. What does it mean? What is the Spirit teaching us here? I think that He's teaching us that God's mission that He wants to accomplish through us by His Spirit is to every nation. Bam, right there. Just to every nation. And I don't think that means that every one of us, you know, needs to sell our house and raise support and move our whole family somewhere else or maybe go as a single person somewhere else, learn a new language, learn a new culture, and then take the gospel to some other nation. But I want to stop and say I do think that probably means some of us do. And here's the point. What we do need to do is to lay our lives before the Lord and say, okay, it's yours, right? I mean, you own it. If I belong to Jesus, then I belong to Jesus and it's yours. Life is mission. So what do you want to do with my life then? Spirit, lead me in this. Guide me in this. Speak to me in this. Empower me in this. In my own world, the people with whom I work, live, and play, in this city, together with my church, but then also in all the earth. How am I supposed to be involved in your obviously manifestly global Mission, And I'll tell you where he often is pleased to answer those questions and to give you a heart for the nations. It's on a short-term missions trip, which is why next week we're going to roll out dates for Haiti. Be praying about that. Be thinking about that. God will use you not just to transform somebody there, but to transform you. And he'll bring a transformed you back, one with a heart for his gospel. And for the nations. And so the Spirit comes upon these guys and they rush out into the streets and they're proclaiming Jesus and all of these different languages and all of these people who speak all these languages are going, what in the world is going on here? They're amazed, they're perplexed, but some of them are not impressed apparently. Because listen to what they say. Luke says, verse 13, but others were mocking them and they said, now listen to their accusation, they are filled with new wine. What they're saying is, these guys are drunk. Which, oddly enough, I find kind of helpful. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Hmm. Listen to what Paul says. Ephesians 5, verse 18. He knowingly and intentionally uses this analogy. By the way, don't miss the first phrase. He says, and do not get drunk with wine. Just throwing that out there. For that is debauchery, but instead be filled with, be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Now, I was in a fraternity, so that means something to me. I want you to understand that I have, at the very least, observed intoxication. And here's what I've observed. 
And I've observed that it affects the way that you speak. Not just in the way that you articulate words, but in the words that actually come out of your mouth. And in fact, it even with a lot of people affects your willingness to speak. Some of the quietest people become very verbose. Hold that in mind. It affects the way you see, you know, double vision and all that stuff. And it affects what you hear and, and how well you hear and your willingness to hear. It affects the way you walk and where you go. It affects your memory. It affects the way you spend your money. My dad used to get my credit card bills in college, so we should probably all observe a moment of silence in honor of his grief. I remember one day he called me up, and there were none of the usual niceties. Not, hey, Tom, how you doing, you know, just right to the point. So I said, hello, and he said, so, how was New Orleans? I said, uh, he said, uh, that's it, that's all you got, uh, that's it? Looks like you must have had fun. You know what's not fun? Getting the bill. That's not fun. I got the bill. You had the fun, and I don't like this arrangement. By the way, what is the Hard Rock Cafe? What is that? What did you buy there, and for whom? Did you get something for everyone? I'm thinking, no, just for the 20 people I was with. It affects how you spend your money. And please hear this. It makes you generous, particularly when it's your father's money. (laughs) Don't laugh too quick. Tell you what else it does. It makes you fearless. Stupidly, but it's liquid courage. All right, so Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine. So don't do that. Don't go to New Orleans unless you can show self-control, for that is debauchery and it is. But instead be filled or intoxicated with the Holy Spirit and understand that when you are, it will affect your speech. You will become more like Uncle Ben than you are right now. And it'll affect your willingness to speak. It will affect how well you see. You'll cease to become like the priest and the Levite in that story of the Good Samaritan. You know, they see their Jewish brother beaten and dying and naked and bleeding on the side of the road. And you know what they see in him? They see inconvenience and expense. So they skate by as fast as they can, lest they be seen. What does the Good Samaritan see in him? An opportunity to love God by loving people. His heart is full of compassion. It affects how well you hear and your willingness, by the way, to humbly listen, to shut down your defenses, to stop the argument and to hear the heart, maybe of your husband or wife or parent or child or somebody else. Maybe it's just somebody who needs a whole lot of your time to dump on you, just like maybe you've needed a whole lot of somebody else's time in the past to dump on them. It will affect that. It will affect your walk and your willingness to go the extra mile and where you go. It will affect your memory and what you're willing by God's grace and able by God's grace both to remember and to forget. Forgetfulness can be gracious. It'll affect the way you spend your money if you're filled with the Spirit. And hear this, it will make you generous with your father's money because every dollar you have is his. It's his. And so if his spirit directs you to spend it, 
I'm thinking he's not going to be upset when he gets the bill. And lastly, when you're filled with the Spirit, it makes you fearless. You're a child of God. It's one of the fundamental messages that the Spirit brings home to us. You belong to the King. Your Savior is the one who has himself defeated death. What in the world do we have to be afraid of? What would it be? And it allows you to fearlessly then lay down your life to take the mercy and message of Christ to the people in your world with whom you work, live, and play, to the city that we all belong in and live to live in, and, and to the nations. Life is mission, but it's a mission that is led by the Holy Spirit and lived in His power. Okay? Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we do thank You for our Savior. We thank You for redemption and forgiveness. We thank You that all, for all that is ours in Him, for the place where we're going and for the opportunity and privilege to take our lives now and invest it in a mission of taking other people with us to that place. Lord, the one that we need is Your Spirit. And I pray, God, that You would send Your Spirit upon us as individuals that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your gospel and to this mission, that you would speak to us and inspire in us a desire to come to know your voice. Lord, that you would draw near to us. I pray that you would do that for us as families, that you would allow us to imagine the transformational possibilities that are ours because the living God, by his Spirit, lives in us. And Lord, I lift this church before you, and I pray that you would be pleased in this church, in our school, in this city, to pour your Spirit out upon us in an unprecedented way, a way, Lord, that doesn't make us puffed up, but humbles us as we realize, my goodness, what's happening here is what only God can do. We pray these things for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.